welcome to the Tony and Dakota podcast. We are here with another special guest. This is Christian Stanford <laughs> Bergman. <laughs> uh, Christian is in the the same future flipper mastermind as us. Uh, he formerly in the minor leagues before he became a major league baseball player, major league pitcher, by the way, one of the hardest things you can become. Uh, he may have struck out Ryan Pineda, our mastermind coach. You guys probably know Ryan if you're watching this. And uh, he went to college, got a degree in psychology and social behavior from the Universal University of California, Irvine. He played uh, Major League Baseball. He played for the Colorado Rockies as a pitcher, and then he played for the Seattle Mariners as a pitcher. Uh, Christian primarily focuses on large multifamily properties, syndications. We may talk about funds and that sort of thing as well. Uh, right now, he has over $20 million of assets under management, uh, 85 units, and he's working on some more. Uh, with Ryan Pineda, you mentioned Ryan, um, which would put him up to 129 units. Is that 129 units total or 129 on top of the 85? 129 total. So we're we're working on uh, 44 units right now. So the the system that I was using, I was trying to figure out. I was like, where does Christian live? Did he did he like get this money? You know, as a major league baseball pitcher, did he like go big with his house? And then it looked like you're living in one of the apartments of one of maybe one of the properties that you bought, or maybe you're, you're like in a condo or something like that. I couldn't figure it out. I was like, I didn't know if I had the right address. I was like, man, I don't, Christian's not, he doesn't have like the Lamborghini and the, the, you know, <laughs> the $5 million house or anything like that. It looks like you'd be a little smart with your money. Yeah. Um, we could talk a lot about that, but you know, I, I did some things differently when I was playing. Um, you know, as most people know, like you don't make any money really in the minor leagues. You're getting paid about $8,000 a year. But then when you get to the big leagues, you know, the world changes overnight. And major league minimum is now about 600K annually. Um, but back then it was about 525. Now, you know, that obviously that's good money, but they count every single day that you're in the major leagues. And so you get prorated that amount so what ends up happening is if you only spend half the year in the big in the major leagues you're only getting you know half of that five hundred thousand. then you have to consider that your living expenses you're usually going to have um one in the city that you're playing in long story short like and you're paying the highest in taxes so long story short like your money doesn't go that far especially when you're making the league minimum so you do have to do some things differently like while you're playing and, you know, to your point, like, yeah, I wasn't buying cars and stuff. Um, I was actually buying rental properties. And uh, before we get too far into this interview, Christian actually has a website, a personal brand that he just uh, released that he wanted us to mention specifically for baseball players who are looking to make smart decisions with their money so that they can have freedom and income after they leave the major leagues. And that's christianbergman.com, spelled exactly like I spelled it. Hopefully I spelled it right. 
when I uh, launch this video. I'll check it for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, um, like I said, you know, I've, I've been through, um, a full career arc. You know, I was drafted in the 24th round, which is not very high. Um, and in fact, like at the time there were 50 rounds. Now I think there's only 30 and there may only be 20 now. So, um, I, I signed for a thousand dollars. That was my signing bonus and never had any money until I got to the big leagues. Um, so as soon as I got to the big leagues and finally had some money to play around with, I was looking at investments and, and ways to make that money go further. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that like I had to earn my way up to that point. You know, if you get drafted first overall, yeah, you're getting a check for $9 million potentially fresh out of high school. That's a totally different career path and totally different mindset. But since I knew like, Hey, I wasn't supposed to get here to begin with. Now that I'm here, I want to make it last as long as I possibly can. And not only that, whatever money I do make during this time, I want to make that last as, much, as long as I possibly can, because you're, and I talk about this in the guide as an athlete, your earnings window is tiny compared to everyone else. You are extremely fortunate if you play till you're 40 years old. I, I played till I was 32 and I played a, you know, 10 year career is like pretty good. Not a lot, a lot of people don't even get there. So yeah, that's what I talk about in the book is like things you can do while you're playing and things you should at least be thinking about so that you set yourself up well, not only while you're playing, but after you're done more importantly. That's awesome. So did you, uh, did you start off like getting the minimum then? Like, you know, whatever you said it was like 425 or 500, did you start off getting that? And then like, did you eventually bump up and start getting more like as you progressed or how did that go? Yeah. So the way major league baseball is set up is in your first three years of service, the team doesn't have to pay you any more than the league minimum. Have you been thinking about investing in real estate? It's not like what you see on HGTV. We created a course to show you how to really invest and create a profitable flipping and wholesaling business. We give you marketing strategies like how to pull lists, who we target, and where we find the money. We go over sales, which includes live calls and negotiations, scripts, role-playing, and so much more. Everything that you need to know to flip houses is in this course. And if there's anything that we missed, we will create a video to answer your specific question. This knowledge has made us over a million dollars and we're selling it today for just $997. Click the link below. But again, three years of service is not three calendar years. It is three years. And I think a year is 172 playing days. So it could take you 10 years to get three years of service. I never got to three years of major league service. I was at two years and 135 days, but I played 10 years. So I never got to three years of service. So technically, you know, and people can look this up. I don't know if it's accurate online, but you know, I basically made the league minimum for two years and 135 days, which equates to gross earnings, 1.5 million. Now go ahead and slash that half because half is going to go to taxes. Because is in those years you're earning, you're in the highest tax bracket. So it is not a very efficient way to make money. I'll I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> so you started making a little bit of money. Did you did you get some of that money and say like okay like half of this I'm going to invest or some of this I'm going to use and put into rental properties? Did, so you had a little bit of a vision and you knew that you need to make it last or spread your money out. 
how did you choose to spend your money then when you started to get some decent checks? I mean, you weren't getting crazy checks, but you're getting some decent checks. How did you end up using that money? Did you, were you able to keep any of it? Yeah. Um, so during the season, obviously you're focused on playing and, and everything like that. And that's when the checks are coming in because you only get paid during the season. So I, I think, you know, those checks come in around maybe uh, 25, uh, 20 grand every two weeks for, uh, you know, six, five months out of the year, five to six months out of the year. So what I was doing was I would basically let all that pile up. I'd pay for what I had to, you know, during the season, um, which a lot of times, like I said, included living near the ballpark. And then at the end of the season, towards the end of the season, I would buy a rental property or a property. Uh, and I decided I wanted to live in uh, Scottsdale area because that's where Spark Spring Training was. So it made sense that like, if I had a place that I was living there, at least I could live at home for an extra month or two during spring training. And then my plan was during the season, I was going to rent it out. So even if I only rented it out three months out of the year, like it's better than nothing. Um, and obviously you have the appreciation and stuff going on in the background. So my first year, it would have been 2015. I bought my first condo in Scottsdale, um, lived in it during the off season. And then during the season, I rented it out the next year, bought another property strictly as a rental and just rented that out. Um, and one thing I did with that, that I wouldn't do again, I paid cash for that property because like the money that was coming in was substantial. So I was able to save up a lot of money. Um, so I paid cash for it because I was just learning. I didn't know kind of ways to leverage things and why you want to do that intelligently. Um, and then basically I followed every single year I'd buy one property. And by the end of it, I had um, four properties, one of which I lived in and the cash flow from the other properties paid the mortgage for the place I was living in which was my goal from the very beginning, because I just wanted to be able to go off and play and have my place or, you know, my home paid for. How did you uh, start coming up with these strategies? And was, did you read Rich Dad Poor Dad? Like, all right, this makes sense. Or like, what, what got you actually thinking about it? Because like most people, man, you're making that kind of money. You're like, man, I've made it. I'm good. Like, I don't need anything else, you know? Like, I know that's why you probably did the website and everything, but how did you get out of that mindset and actually start thinking, I'm going to invest this and do this the right way? Yeah. Um, originally, I went into, I started learning about the stock market. I think part of it had to do with, uh, right after I got called up, I actually, I broke my hand. I had a line drive hit off my hand and I was, um, I couldn't do anything for eight weeks. So I didn't have a whole lot to do. I mean, there's not a whole lot to do to heal a broken bone. Um, so while the team was on the road, you know, I was just sitting in Denver, like <laughs> basically by myself. Um, and I had lots of time on my hands. So I started just like going down various rabbit holes and just learning about stuff. Um, I found out fairly quickly that I didn't like the stock market because I didn't understand it. Uh, I have very little control over what's actually going on. You know, if someone sneezes in New York, why did, why should that affect my, you know, my portfolio here, you know, stuff like that. So started looking into real estate, originally found bigger pockets and started, which is where a lot of us, you know, started, um, just started reading, you know, resources on there. It's like, okay, you buy the property, you rent it out. 
someone pays you rent, they pay the mortgage, they pay all the expenses and what's left over goes to you. I can understand that. <laughs> That's pretty easy. And then I was like, well, wait a minute. What if, what if I could buy that place, live in it, but then while I'm not there, then I could rent it out. And so it really just kind of started to snowball from there. And then were you Airbnb it or was this like a long-term rental? Because obviously you're living there. So was all your stuff there? Or did you move that out every time? At this 2015, Airbnb was around. It wasn't definitely not at the scale that it's at now. Um, and the other problem was it was a condo. So technically I, I couldn't Airbnb it, but I, I was able to find a tenant for like a three-month lease. Um, so, you know, in a perfect world, like, yeah, I would have gone back and gone heavier into the Airbnb, uh, but it just, it wasn't quite where it is today. Um, so, you know, you do what you can with the information you have. Yep. Well, on top of being one of the hottest places, just by temperature, uh, around the Phoenix, Arizona market, it's one of the hottest markets right now, maybe because people, you know, retire there from living in California or uh, come up from the north down to the south. They want to not deal with the temperatures anymore or people like Dakota don't want to uh, hang out in the snow in the winters anymore. Seems like a lot of people really like Arizona, that hot, dry climate. Um, property values are going up a lot there. Is that, so that's where you live, but is that where you're also investing in all of your multifamily or are you going outside of that market to find deals? Yeah, as far as stuff where I'm going to be the lead sponsor on, um, on the multifamily side, I'm focusing only on Phoenix. Um, it's for all the reasons you said, um, it's a very good market for real estate investment where it's growing. It's a beneficiary of migratory patterns. It's a beneficiary of uh, companies moving because of the favorable tax environment. Um, there's a lot of reasons that Phoenix is growing like it is. Um, and, but more importantly, really, I know it better than any place else in the country. So, you know, I know the good places to be. I know the, I know the places that are growing. I know the, I've really lived kind of all over the, they call it the Valley in Phoenix. I've lived on the West side. I've lived in Scottsdale. So, you know, I've just seen the growth and the good places that are um, the good places to be. So, you know, I focus on Phoenix now because of, you know, our network with Future Flipper and everything. Yes, I will partner with people who are in other markets, but I'm not going to be the lead in it because, you know, I, I don't know about that market. So we're also doing a deal with Ryan Pineda and, and Graham Stephan in St. Louis. And we're still in due diligence on that. So it's not um, completely locked in, but I never would have looked in St. Louis unless I knew somebody there. Uh, Cause I don't know anything about it. Uh, what made you decide to go in the direction of doing large multifamily deals like these syndications. I don't know if you guys started funds to take accredited and non-accredited investors. So I guess, what does your investment strategy look like and how did you go from single family homes over to doing really big deals? Yeah, um, so I guess, I mean, we could go back to when I retired from baseball, I knew that I wanted to do something in real estate. I just didn't know what. Um, so originally that's how I found Ryan was, I think I'd actually heard him on a podcast or something and, and we played against each other, as you said. Um, and so I knew what he was doing. And so originally I looked into flipping and wholesaling and actually 
prior to flipping, I, <laughs> I went to work for a wholesale company, which to be honest, I didn't understand what wholesaling was. Um, and I think I had put a post out, you know, saying that I was going to be working for this company and Ryan messaged me and goes, why are you working for another company? Cause you know, he obviously understood more than I did. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and he had a feeling that I wasn't going to like it. And sure enough, like six days later, I quit because it was not, once I figured out like, Oh, my job is to take this property that we have under contract and find a buyer for it. Well, I don't want to do that. Like I want to be the one buying it. Um, so moved on from that, then went into, uh, started looking into flipping and, you know, being in Phoenix, like I knew, okay, you know, there are definitely flippers operating out here. Um, so that's when I joined Ryan's course. Are you letting deals fall through the cracks because you don't have good systems in place? We've been there before and we've tried several different CRMs and Ari Simply has been the best. Ari Simply tracks your KPIs, does automatic follow-ups for you, and even records your incoming phone calls. The system is simple to use and has more features than we even know what to do with. If you're looking for a great CRM, try RE Simply today. We put the link in the description. Check it out now. And quickly found out, I got, got my first deal and quickly found out that I hated flipping houses. Um, it is just, it is not in my personality type. I have all the respect in the world for the people who can do it because it's just not my thing. Um, and really the problem I was trying to address was that when I retired from baseball, all my, I would, I didn't have income anymore. So how the heck do I keep buying properties? How do I scale my real estate business? If I don't have any income, all the bank is looking at is my income. How the hell do I keep buying properties? I can't do it. I couldn't even refinance my primary residence when COVID hit and rates dropped to the floor. I couldn't refinance because I didn't have income. So that was the, that was the problem I was trying to solve. And once I found syndication, I was like, okay, this fits my experience because I have experience managing properties really from a distance, single family. I'm really just applying those principles to a larger asset, which I quickly found out to be honest has, is a lot easier to manage because it's bigger. It has more income and you can actually have staff that help you with certain things. And that's just at the property level. In the, at the syndication level, um, you have all different ways that you can bring in partners to help you do bigger deals. And that's, once I figured that out, I knew like this is what I wanted to do because I saw I had an opportunity to help the community I used to be a part of in baseball. So I realized I should have been investing as a limited partner in these deals, not buying a condo in Scottsdale and having to do everything myself. So once I discovered that, I knew that's what I wanted to do. So that's kind of how I, how I got there. So uh, you should have a t-shirt that says like future holder or like get Ryan to <laughs> make a new t-shirt that says like, hold on for dear life or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good idea. when you go into these deals, do you put some of your own money in? How many of them are you a general partner? How many of you of them are you a limited partner? What's the difference for people who have never heard of syndications, don't even know what we're talking about? Um, give us a little bit of an overview of your position and your yeah. uh, investment um, history. Yeah. Um, so first of all, uh, quick terminology, an LP, a limited partner, is just is the passive investor. A general partner 
or GP, also known as the sponsor, um, that is the person who is running the deal, finding the deal, and bringing the offering to the LPs. Um, so the thing I liked about syndication was that, you know, I could apply those skills as a, as a GP and bring these to other people. Um, so, oh, and the, the other thing I would say was because of the scale that we're talking about here, I only have to do two to three deals a year. And that's like a really good year. I would, and this goes back to my personality. I would rather focus on two to three big things than 30 small things. And I get it. Like you can scale your business and have employees and stuff, but point being, I didn't want to go through all that. So, um, we've done, uh, in 2021, I started basically started January, 2021 and by, October had acquired 85 units in syndications. So in both of those, I'm obviously the general partner. I was the lead sponsor on those. We raised about $4 million, uh, three and a half. And then I invested, um, I'm, I think in both deals, I'm the largest investor. So, and this is one of the other things I like about syndication, uh, alignment of interests. So on the surface, it seems like, well, if you're not putting in any of your own money, you know, why would people want to invest in you? And that's a, that's a valid question, especially if you're first starting. So I'm heavily invested in both of our deals. So essentially all our investors are investing alongside me. And obviously I don't want to take all my hard earned money from 10 years of grinding through the minor leagues and, you know, finally getting to the big leagues. I don't want to flush all that away. So I'm going to make damn sure that these deals go well. And as a result, like our investors get a great return too, without having to do any of the work. So um, those two deals, I'm a general partner and a limited partner in, and then uh, we're working on the on the third one right now. So we might be on pace to do like 200 plus deals this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to me but that's that's. But they're all smaller. Crazy. Like you're saying, they're all smaller. So what, what were the early struggles, like getting, like, how did you get started in this? Like, how did you figure out what lawyers to get? What were the early struggles and how did you even get uh, syndication going? Yeah, uh, number one, most important thing was I had a mentor who, who showed me how to do it. Um, I hired him, his name's Rob Beardsley. He has about uh, I think they're getting close to 3,000 units in Texas. And by the way, he's 25 years old. Wow. Um, so <laughs> as soon as I discovered him, the way I found him was I saw his book and I read his book and it's a deep dive into underwriting. And, you know, I'd seen all the Grant Cardones and which is great, right? Because it opens your mind up to some bigger things, but it doesn't, he doesn't give as much of the, um, where the rubber meets the road, how to, structure the deals, how to underwrite the deals, how to make even any sense of it. What am I looking at? Um, so that's what I got from Rob. And then we basically had a one-on-one -on -one consulting arrangement where he would mentor me on everything. Um, and then he would be a partner on our, a general partner on our first deal. Um, so th that's where I started. And I, I have to say like, you know, and you guys know this, being part of a mastermind group, being around other people and having a coach is the single most important and best way to turbocharge whatever it is you're doing. 
Um, and I don't know that I even do any of these deals without his mentorship. Um, because originally I was looking at eight units. Why? Because it's what I could afford. It's the money I had. And I didn't understand how to structure these things. So he gave me like the framework. And then I went out and found a local attorney in Phoenix uh, for like the, the real estate contracts and stuff like that. Uh, then he was able to connect me with a syndication attorney who um, creates the private placement documents um, so that you can go out and raise money. Um, I would say the earliest struggle I had was raising capital, um, which makes sense because it's the first time you're doing something and you know, it's hard to get people on board with that. Um, and so I ended up bringing a teammate of mine who actually, we were roommates and he was a limited partner in some deals while we were rooming together and he never told me about it. Uh, <laughs> so a little upset at him, um, but he, you know, since uh, he has become a, a general partner in, uh, in both of our deals and um, has also invested in them. So he brought in, he was able to bring in some capital as well and connect us with some other people. But, um, you know, that, that was the hardest part initially was raising capital, you know, because I never raised any money before and we had to all of a sudden raise $2 million. Yeah, you said you've raised uh, uh, $4 million total. Are you still utilizing banks uh, for, you know, the 75% or whatever? Oh, yeah, of course. 5%? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, what do you think about, like, you know, you said you couldn't refinance your property because you're not showing income or whatever. How have you found it to be different from single family versus these multis? Everybody says it's way easier, but I just want to hear from your side. How, how much yeah. easier is it? Yeah, so think about that. In 2021, I couldn't refinance my primary residence that I live in. <laughs> However, I could borrow or, or get, or I could qualify for loans for $14 million in multifamily. Wow. Why is that? The bank is looking at the asset. They're looking at the under, at the security for the loan. A single family house, while, you know, it's, it's some security, I guess, really they're more interested in your ability to pay the mortgage and your job is paying the mortgage. So you can see why they wouldn't let me refinance because I didn't have a job, <laughs> but it, you know, and not that we want like the bank to take back the property, but with multifamily or really any commercial, the property itself is producing income. So in a downside scenario where the bank did have to take back the property, at least they have in place income that can, you know, in a sense, make them whole. So in multifamily, the bigger you go, the more the bank is looking at the asset and they're more interested in that. And obviously they want to know, like they're not giving money to some felon or something. Um, so there is some basic credit criteria that you have to pass. Credit score has got to be good. If your personal finances are completely upside down, you're probably not qualifying either. So you need to have your, your stuff together. But I would say 75% of it, they're looking at the deal itself. So how did you go about finding your deals? Do you guys look on the MLS? Historically, Dakota and I have never looked on the MLS. Um, or we've gotten a couple of deals off the MLS, but that's it. You know, most of our deals come from direct to seller marketing. 
Do you guys use big data? Like, is there some sort of platform like batch leads or multifamily or like, how do you source your deals? And then for us, uh, what is your criteria for deciding whether or not a deal would even be worth uh, pursuing? Uh, very easy, very fine deals, brokers. That's it. I don't do any uh, direct to seller. I don't do any marketing. I don't do any of that. And the reason is the brokers are pretty much already doing that. So I'm not going to compete well with the broker whose sole job is to <laughs> get listings and, um, and, you know, trade properties in and out. They know uh, who the sellers are. They know whose loans are coming due. They know who wants to do a 1031 exchange. They know who wants to do a 1031 exchange and therefore needs a property to swing up into. They know all that. They know how all these pieces are moving around the board. And it's just not realistic to think that in any reasonable amount of time, I'm going to be able to have even half the information they have. And if you do go direct to seller, like, yes, you may be able to find really good deals. I'm not going to say it's impossible because it's not. However, a lot of times you're going to be dealing with unsophisticated sellers, longtime owners, because I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that's where a lot of deals come from, right? <laughs> um, a lot of these people don't even understand how their property is really valued because maybe it was handed down to them, um, you know, through the years. And really the only reason they're even entertaining your offers because they want to know how much it's worth, but they're not really motivated to sell. Um, so long story short, we've exclusively gone through brokers because they will have all the financial information available. We know the seller wants to sell. Um, it just takes a lot off your plate. Um, and so, yeah, both deals uh, have been found through, actually all three have been found um, through brokers. And most important thing you can do is establish a relationship with the brokers in your market, because obviously there are the deals that are on market, but then there's the stuff that's like kind of pre-market off market. Um, and some pretty good deals can be found there. So um, they're not going to send you that stuff if they're not taking you seriously and they don't think you're legit. Um, so the best thing you can do is, is establish credibility with brokers in the market you're looking in. What's the best way to do that? How did you actually like do that? Or do people already know you from being a broker or how did you do it? Um, yeah, nobody know, no, nobody knew who the heck I was. Um, that's for sure. But um, I found, and this is what I teach people now, go on LoopNet. Okay, there, there's, no, there's no actual deals on LoopNet, but what you can find is who is listing those deals. And you'll see, you'll start to see some common uh, brokers that are listing deals in your, that fit your criteria. Um, so I made a list of who those brokers were and who the brokerage was actually. And then I went to their website and I found the guy kind of at the bottom of the totem pole, you know, you've got the, the head guy. If you call that guy and he, and they've never heard of you, they're probably not going to give you the time of day um, because they've already got, you know, buyers and sellers that they work with all the time. Um, so I kind of went to the lowest guy and I said, Hey, you know, here's, here's what I'm looking for because he's motivated to get into some bigger deals, right? He needs people. Um, he needs to close transactions to do that. So our, again, our interests are aligned. We want to work with each other. Um, but the biggest key is to not waste their time when they do send you stuff. So 
Um, if he sent me anything, I would immediately give him feedback, even if I hated it. Um, if he, you know, he sent me some, you know, 15 unit thing in the hood that was like a practically a teardown. I was like, never send me this again. <laughs> this is not what I want. I want like, you know, a, a decent value add deal that's operating that's, you know, occupied. I don't want a distressed deal. And so just giving that feedback, they appreciate that because now they know, okay, don't send them that stuff. And then when they bring you something that does work, you know, they want to know that you're, that you're working toward and you're, you know, taking it seriously, that you're working towards actually buying this deal. Um, so those are like the first few steps I took. Yeah. So what, how do you actually give them your criteria? Then you're like, okay, I'm looking for, you know, this many units, a max cap of this, you know, rehab, like what, what's the breakdown that you usually give them and what do you look for? Yeah. Um, basic things are, you know, number of units, um, total purchase price. And really that's going to be derived from how much you're comfortable raising. Um, uh, class of building, usually, you know, A to F and that usually comes down to the build year and the build quality. So, you know, pretty much anything 1980 or newer um, is, you know, in the BC uh, building class. Um, anything 1970 or older is C or below. Doesn't mean it's bad because obviously renovations can be done. But realistically, like you're never going to take a D class property and turn it into an A. You may be able to turn it into like a high C um, uh, building class. And then what area do you want to be in? And that's why it's important to understand your market because I can tell you exactly where I will not buy in Phoenix. Um, so just to have those basic criteria, me personally in Phoenix, I'm looking for 50 plus units. Uh, I want purchase price to be over, uh, 10 million, uh, nothing under, and that's because of the loans. Um, and uh, see your better uh, property, preferably 1980s or newer build, uh, and see your better area. Um, so, and you just give those criteria to the broker, and that, you know that's a pretty good starting point. And then you can also get into like what type of deal do you want it to be stabilized and like newly renovated, or do you want to do the renovations? How much renovation do you want to be adding in washer dryers? You know, stuff like that. Yeah. So are you basically like buying this for the cash flow or a cap rate? Or are you buying this to like flip it? Cause like, you know, you talked about, you're not liking flips, but ultimately that's obviously probably the goal, right? Sure. The appreciation and stuff. So what's, what do you actually look for? Yeah. Um, I've had to kind of adjust that just based on what is available in the market. Um, our first deal we bought was a cash flow deal. Um, and a lot of it was created because of the type of loan we were able to get. And so we closed on that in, uh, let's see, 20, would have been 2021, which um, at that time, like uh, interest rates were extremely low, you know, because we were still dealing from the fallout from COVID. So there were, it was prior to, we actually got that under contract in like January. Um, so that was prior to Phoenix really taking off. Um, and that it happened everywhere, real estate in general, just completely exploded in 2021 because of the drop in interest rates. Um, so I, I like the timing couldn't have been more perfect for that deal. Uh, and it, and the cash flow again was created out of that loan because we have an interest only period. Uh, rents hadn't climbed as much of they as much as they have. 
Um, so again, purchase price related to uh, where the rents were and everything, like it created cash flow almost instantly. Since then, obviously prices have appreciated quite a bit. So it's very difficult to find cash flow in a, a market like Phoenix that's growing rapidly. Um, so uh, that first deal cash flow based, the one we got after that was more of an appreciation, forced appreciation play where we're doing, it, it essentially is a flip but it, it takes longer. And the thing that I like about it personally is you have income while you're flipping it. So it's not like you're taking the thing completely offline and you're you know, in the red for six months while you're doing it. You have in, income coming in. So you have some more options at that point. Um, but you know, me personally, I like mid to longer term holds, you know, three to five years, optimize the, the property, the, the management of it, um, keep your rents as close to market as you can. Um, but eventually like you have to keep that. That's a big thing with me. You have to keep your equity moving because if you have $500,000 of equity in a house, you may be cash flowing, you know, a thousand dollars a month, which is great based on what you invested in it. But based on if you redeployed that equity into something else, it's not that great. Your return on equity is not very good. Yeah. So that's something to keep an eye on, especially on behalf of your investors. Yeah, that's that's interesting that you say that too. I never even thought about that. Whenever you're flipping apartments, is that uh, your overhead is basically taken care of in a way, or a lot of it, or at least some of it? Because you know, obviously, whenever you're flipping properties and whenever you're doing it at scale, it's like you go real far in the red and you're profitable. It's like, man, we're making all this money, but you're like you're profitable on each property, making stupid money but you're never actually like getting to keep it. I think that's why Ryan, you know, talked about like, man, I don't know if I want to keep scaling flipping because like, right. like you're making all this money, but you don't actually get to keep it. So that's an interesting point. Well, yeah. it's vacant because it's only, you know, one unit, something, exactly. something I was thinking of for viewers too, that are watching is just, uh, I, I can't give you exactly what a cap rate is, but you know, there's not net operating income for the property, which is all of the income. So the rents, maybe coin laundry, maybe some other things that you threw into this multifamily property, minus the uh, common utilities, like the, the lights in the hallways, and maybe the security system, maybe the entries, uh, the, the door cards that always seem to go bad, and then you got to get a new one. Uh, we were just at a hotel that did that. But, <laughs> you know, there's, there's all of these uh, things that you can do to actually reduce the capital expenditures, like installing smart thermostats, like changing the lights from the old style to the uh, high-performing uh, LED-type lights and that sort of thing that, that use less electricity. Um, so for uh, you guys... Is that one of the plays as well as the appreciation, as well as raising rent slowly, as well as maybe uh, trying to do value adds by adding an additional room or improving the properties or making them nicer? Is that something that you guys definitely look at and how does it play out? Yeah, so that, that's an important point. Um, all the things you brought up about the income and the expenses, that is the, the appreciation. If I can increase the income, and even just keep the expenses the same, I have increased the value. I don't even necessarily need to spend money to do it. 
So that's a major difference between single family and multifamily is uh, multifamily is evaluated or is valued based on the income approach. It's how much income it makes. I could spend, uh, and, and the other thing I would say was everybody who has a rental property has an NOI. They may not be keeping track of it. They may not know that they have it, but all it is, is your income minus your expenses before your mortgage payment. Whatever that number is annually, that's your NOI. The difference is a single family house is not valued based on that. A multifamily property is. So um, for example, if you had a single family house and your NOI was $10,000, um, it doesn't matter because the house next door is worth 400 grand or whatever it is. If the, the area appreciation is 10% on a given year, and let's just say, um, for, you know, somehow you were able to increase the income of that property by a hundred percent. That doesn't mean the value of your property went up because the house next door and the house down the street, it's based on the comps approach. So that is our, our, the way we add value to properties now is by increasing the income or reducing the expenses one or, or both. Now, sometimes you do have to spend money to do that. And so a perfect example is one of our current deals. It, um, the property level utility expense, uh, all of the electricity, uh, basically all the utilities were paid for at the owner level. There was one utility bill. So as a result, like people run the air conditioning. Well, actually in this case, it had a chiller, which means that the chiller was either on or it was off. So people don't even have control over their air conditioning. Um, so it's just kind of a inefficient property. So we went in, we're going in and individually metering all the units for electric. So now all the individual units have their own electric bill. So what have we done by doing that? We've just removed 50% of the utility expense from the property level. And now, you know, uh, the, or the, the tenants pay their own utilities. Therefore it's probably being, you know, they're probably being more energy efficient. And we also put in individual HVAC units uh, on those units because now the tenants will have a better experience. Their units will be better because they can actually control their the temperature in their unit. Uh, and that was really cheap, right? <laughs> yeah, extremely cheap. No. <laughs> we, have, we have about a million dollar budget. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it, it improves the property in that sense. And the other thing was like maintaining a chiller system is extremely expensive. So the repairs and maintenance for the property were higher. So, you know, I'd have to go back and look at what the, the projections were, but I mean, let's just assume that, you know, we erased $50,000 of expenses from the, the property level at what's probably about a four cap right now. Uh, that's $1.25 million of value that we've just created right there. And the million dollar budget is for the entire project for that specific aspect of it. We only spent $450,000 to obtain 1.25 million of value. So your base, it's a three X return on your money. And that's the stuff you're able to do in, in multifamily that you're, that's, you're not necessarily able to do in single family. Yeah, that's crazy. So, um, I was, I've, as you know, I've been looking at some properties in Phoenix and I, the thing that bothers me the most is when I see what they bought them for three or four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my 
gosh, like, you know, people look at us and they say the same thing, but I mean, we're talking about buying properties at 20,000 and now they're worth, you know, 80 to a hundred. It's not that big of a deal. Over there, we're talking, people bought these duplexes for 200,000. Now they're selling for 700, you know what right. I mean? It's a little bit bigger of a deal. So um, have you thought about like uh, if stuff shifts or if anything changes for you or is it different multifamily or how is that different from single family if it is and like what's your kind of uh, thoughts on all of it? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a pretty complex question, but um, my thoughts are in single family, um, obviously you are, you are uh, maybe competing isn't the word, but the buyers for single family are investors, obviously, but that's a very small portion. Really, the, most of the buyers are people who want to live in, you know, single family properties. So in my opinion, those values are going to be more sensitive to uh, interest rate increases because as interest rates go up, the buyer pool shrinks. And therefore, you know, I, do I think we're going to have a real estate crash? No, in, in any level, I don't think that's going to happen um, for simple supply and demand reasons. Um, but in single family, like I could see a slowdown in the appreciation in even markets like Phoenix or really anywhere because there's less people who are interested in buying it because interest rates are higher. Um, the same is somewhat true in multifamily, but there, there's one big difference. These aren't people who are wanting to live in these properties. This is, you know, capital that is seeking a home. <laughs> it's seeking a yield. It needs to generate a return. So as we all know, 30% of all the money in the United States economy was created in the last two years. That capital is all sloshing around in the economy and it is, it is losing 8% a year just sitting in cash. It needs to be deployed into something. So do I think that, you know, commercial multifamily real estate values are going to go up forever? No, I don't think that. But you, you have to look at the other factors, which are there's so much money looking for a home right now. You can't put it in the stock market because, you know, with interest rates rising, that has a direct and immediate impact on stock market returns. And yes, maybe there are buying opportunities now, but we're talking two different asset classes. Um, real estate, multifamily real estate produces income. And, you know, at the very highest levels, you have insurance companies who figure that they need to pay out 1% per year in claims. Where do you think they go to generate 1% per year? They go into large scale commercial, a lot of times multifamily, and they're deploying billions of dollars at a time, but they're getting it. Like they're the ones who are buying three caps. Why? Because they only need to pay out one. So <laughs> that spread is theirs. So, and that, that trickles down from the very top. And um, I think the biggest thing is that uh, they're investors who are looking for ways to generate income. Where else are you going to put it right now? I can't think of a better way to generate income than multifamily real estate right now. Crypto's all over the place. I mean, and again, they're really, we're talking two different asset classes. Crypto doesn't give you income. It's, you know, that's a whole nother conversation, but um, <laughs> you know, in my opinion, like, yes, people are looking at prices per unit in Phoenix and they have a heart attack 
and believe me, I see it too, but they were also saying that uh, in 2021, prior to everything taking off, because the same was true. Like, I think the average price per unit in 2021 in Phoenix was like 170,000. People looked at that and went, oh my God, that's insane. There's a bubble. Well, now it's 300,000. Why is that? Because people are flooding into Phoenix. Capital is flooding into Phoenix. Companies are flooding into Phoenix. There's a lot of fundamental things that I like about Phoenix that I think are going to be sort of insulation to some other you know, things that are going on. Whereas if you're in a market that's shrinking where people don't want to invest, yes, I would be concerned about paying a, you know, a high uh, price per unit or whatever the metric you want to look at. I would be concerned about markets like that. It's so funny too, because I, I feel like, uh, like you were just talking about people who uh, can't necessarily have a vision for the future. And then I think of like settlers back in like the 1700s or something, they would be like, nobody's ever going to come live in a desert. And like, that's exactly what Phoenix is. You know, right. all of these other places got established earlier and then their politics kind of ruined them. Now they're moving over for better business opportunities and better politics in Arizona. I think, I just think it's funny with our modern technology and uh, just the way that things are going. It's interesting that so many people want to live there now. And it's like, makes sense. Yeah, and I, th I think there's, um, there's some things that I'm not like immediately concerned about, but I'm paying attention to that's water because we are in, in a desert. Um, you know, and you want to talk about, you know, droughts and stuff like that, like water is, is a very serious issue everywhere, but you know, if, uh, if Phoenix were to not have enough water available, then obviously its population is going to be limited and that could start to swing things in the other direction. Is that going to happen quickly? No. Um, but to go back to like the, the risk management, right? We can both sit here and try to gaze into our respective crystal balls and predict the future based on the information we have. At the end of the day, I don't know, you don't know, we could both be wrong. So the, the thing that I like about multifamily and particularly the deals that we're doing is that we have the ability to sail through any short-term difficulties. And a lot of that is based on how your loan is structured. So, um, a lot of uh, short-term deals where you're doing like a heavy value add, a big flip, a lot of times those are going to be two to three year loans, which means you have to do something in two years because your loan is due. <laughs> you have to find a way to pay off that loan. If capital markets are not good at that time, if COVID hits at that time and nobody's doing anything, you're in trouble. Um, so the, the thing that I like about our deals is that we have a 10 year potential time horizon. If we project that we're going to sell in three to five years, if things aren't right at that time, we don't have to. So, and, um, you know, as we all know, like there are cycles in real estate in economics in everything, business and everything. The people who are able to hold through the, the tough times are the ones who end up doing well. It's not about timing the market. It's about buying here, 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 buying everywhere and being able to withstand everything for that time. What would you say uh, your biggest struggle is right now? 
Um, that's a good question. I think um, we have a very small operation. It's me and my partner, Jeff. I, I think you guys have met. Now we do have partners in obviously property management, but as far as under our umbrella, our day-to-day -day operations, you know, tracking the deals, finding new deals, stuff like that. Um, my, my biggest struggle right now is uh, finding um, someone like a VA, some sort of assistant to handle some of the more administrative tasks, um, which, you know, as you guys know, when you're first starting out, you wear a lot of hats and probably the biggest struggle right now is whatever hats, you know, whatever roles are in the, the bottom level of the company level organization is finding a way to offload those to someone else. Because as we continue to scale into more units, those tasks are going to increase. And so we need to find a way to, um, to offload some of those um, lower level tasks so that I can keep my eyes on the horizon and look at overall strategies and be paying attention to um, higher level stuff that I need to be paying attention to. Makes sense. <laughs> I think we all go through that at some point. <laughs> or all the time. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we'll figure it out eventually, but it seems like you're always adding people. You're always trying to find other people who can help you go and go bigger. I mean, like, it seems like Ryan's always trying to find, Ryan Panetta is always trying to find uh, uh, more VAs to do more companies, to do more things and more people to follow him around with cameras, more editors. Like you're always looking for people to automate as much as possible. Like. We're doing some weird little stuff, even like uh, I watched um, two people actually talk about it. I saw Ryan talk about getting his haircut at home. Um, and then I also saw uh, Rob Deerdeck talk about like him paying uh, everybody's haircut just to cut the line. I'm like, man, you know what? Like it does take some time to get a haircut. So now we're going to have uh, the lady that cuts our hair come to the office and just do everybody's in the same day. Like um, we're always trying to find ways to be more efficient, to spend more time uh, either doing the things that we love or with family or whatever we want to do. So I don't think it ever ends, that's for sure. Yeah. And one thing that, you know, I am very aware of is um, not just growing, just to grow. Um, I have a goal in mind of getting to 500 units uh, and reassessing at that point, because in order to go from 500 to 2000, you, you gotta um, you gotta grow in a different way, and I think Ryan talked about this at some point. The growth it takes to get from zero to a hundred is different from the growth it takes to get from one hundred to five hundred. Same mm -hmm. thing is true five hundred to two thousand. So, um, you know, I while I I love what I'm doing now, um, I'm not just wanting to grow this infinitely forever. I want to generate really good returns for our investors now which in turn will obviously generate a good return for myself. I'm willing to put the work in now, but eventually like we all want the same thing, right? We all want the freedom to do what we want, when we want with whoever we want. So um, that's why I found, you know, a, um, I found my calling in syndication because I was able to clearly see the path to go from where I was to where I wanted to be. And it, to me, it looked, um, it looked achievable and I could, you know, it got me excited. Um, so, you know, I think like if you start growing just for growth's sake, you start to almost give yourself a job. 
yeah. which none of us, <laughs> you know, really want at the end of the day. We just want the ability to do what we want when we want. So um, we're looking for ways to get to 500 units, set it up so that our inputs are minimal at that point. And then, you know, at that point, maybe it just runs itself or, you know, maybe you find something else you want to do. I say this, uh, you, you touched on it a little bit, but it does go into the next question is like, you know, we all talk about freedom and like, obviously that's what we're all searching after. Um, what, what would you say like is your why? Like, other, like if you went deeper than even just like freedom even. Uh, well, if I can go deeper than that, I, I discovered that um, as I know from playing baseball, it's um, you, you do more for other people than you do for yourself. If you're just purely selfishly motivated, you can only go so far, I think. Uh, and that's kind of how I felt about flipping because if I was going to be flipping houses, I was going to be doing it to make money for myself. And that's pretty much it. That's not that inspiring to me. But once I got into the syndication side, I saw, okay, this gives me the freedom and I see the path to get you know freedom for myself in my family and that's great however the bigger thing is that i see uh the opportunity and the need for baseball players to have access to this stuff because i was as i told you i was active in real estate while i was playing i had no clue that this was even a thing to me that's that's just a crime because uh and really like one of the issues is that in baseball and really athletes in general like when they get money to work with, it goes to a financial advisor and that's the end of it. They don't, most of them, not all of them, there's some that do, but most of them do not give their clients access to real estate. Now, because of all the tax benefits and all the things you and I know all about, why would you not want to give someone access to that? It's, it's ridiculous to me. Um, and it would have taken more off my plate not, not that I was like overwhelmed and managing a few rental properties, but it takes some input. It takes some energy to keep track of that. All the while, I'm trying to be a world-class athlete. Um, so if you could give, if there was a way for players, and luckily there is a way, to give players access to this stuff without having to go through what I went through and refinancing property. Like I, <laughs> I refinanced the property uh, underneath the stadium at one point, like had... <laughs> You know, and Ryan talks about this too. He was, while he was still playing, he was managing flips like inside his locker, like <laughs> stuff like that. Um, I almost lost a property because I got released from my contract out of the blue prior to close. So the bank was going to call, <laughs> was going to call the Cubs and ask if I was still employed. Luckily, I was a veteran at the time, like a veteran player. So I was able to tell them, hey, it's fine if you want to release me. Just give me another week. Yeah. Don't release me for a week. <laughs> so we were able to get it all done. Yeah. Uh, but but stuff like that is um, that's really like my my calling now that I'm able to give back to the community and really the you know fraternity if you want to call it that of players um, and and help them both while they're playing and after. And it's been great to see how many players have reached out to me um, just in the last probably a few months with questions like, Hey, you know, how can I get started? How can I work? Where can I start learning about this? So I just want to be a resource to these guys. 
you're gonna have to start a company called like strikeout deals or <laughs> <laughs> the baseball investor yeah yeah we're, we're uh we have like our kind of group that i'm creating is called the clubhouse um so when you go to the my website on there you can join the clubhouse and um you get you know on our email list and we just i'll be sending out um newsletters you know information just stuff to read like that that's awesome so uh we're getting close to the hour mark usually we ask everybody uh, kind of a deep question um, 60 years from now, you'd be on your deathbed, or we'll just say that you are. Maybe a little, maybe a little longer than that. But 60 years from now, you uh, 94. That's pretty good. <laughs> that's what I thought too. You're not, you're not actually not that much older than me, which was kind of surprising to me. You seem more adult than me. Maybe I'm just too animated and kid-like. But uh, <laughs> uh, you have a legacy to leave. It's a saying, a mantra, a billboard could be a paragraph, um, some final thoughts that you feel uh, like people need to hear. What is your legacy? Uh, I mean, I would say that, the, I don't know if I'd call it a legacy, but like the, the biggest message that I can put across to both athletes and really anybody in, in general, um, is a couple, two things. Taking responsibility for your own actions. Uh, that's a big one. I, I mean, I feel like that deals with a lot of, you know, issues that people run into. Um, and thinking for yourself, not letting other people, and this is especially true today, media, social media, all this stuff influence your, your core beliefs and tell you what to think. Obviously, like we can all learn from other people. I try to learn from as many people as I possibly can on different, you know, viewpoints, topics, stuff like that. But at the end of the day, like you have to think for yourself, it's your decision and take responsibility um, for the decisions you make. Don't blame other people uh, for things that you completely have control over. And the, the things that you don't have control over, why worry about them? It's out of your control. Don't get caught up in, in all the fervor and crap that's out there about stuff that number one doesn't matter number two is <laughs> you can't control it all so if i can get people to think more that way and you can see kind of how that translates into finances for baseball players and stuff like a lot of guys have lost a lot of money because they believed what somebody told them and didn't look any further into it um, ultimately it was their decision, but they were taken advantage of. And, um, if you can just take responsibility for your own actions and do your own research and think for yourself, I feel like that, that covers a lot of different stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's a good one. Both of those were both really good. I don't know if you could fit all that on a billboard, but <laughs> we could probably fit all that. I could probably condense it somehow. Yeah, you just put you are responsible for you. That's it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, how can our listeners get a hold of you? Yeah, uh, easiest way website, christianbergman.com. Um, that's where all my uh, personal stuff is going to be. Um, and my email is christian at christianbergman.com. Um, and then my company for multifamily and investing in the deals themselves is uh, mulliganvalleycapital.com. Yeah. And um, you can, if you ever have deals you're looking at, or this is what I do in the future flipper group, um, you can contact me there. Um, 
for deals and stuff like that and um, to see you know what kind of what type of stuff we're doing uh, in Phoenix. I like and that. then social media, C Bergman 36. Cool, man. Well, thanks for coming on. We appreciate you. Love freaking hearing your story. And uh, hopefully we'll be getting some big deals. And then hopefully I'll be moving to Phoenix here soon in the wintertime. I, I plan on being out there uh, for the winter. I invested a ton of money in the company. But yeah, if you have a duplex, soon. a triplex, or a quad. I've been, I've been sending him some. He told me a while back. Um, actually the one I was sending you just sold, <laughs> but, um, I, yeah, so I made an offer on one back then. And then, uh, the company needed a bunch of money. So I invested like yeah. 170 right now of my own money. So I'm like, man, like, do I really like, basically I'd be pulling from a line of credit to even put the down payment now on this one. Cause I'm like sure. already using part of my line of credit. So I'm like, man, should I even keep maxing out or not? But I'll be out there soon before the winter time. I'm going to be there. Sounds good, man. Let me know. I appreciate you guys having me on too. Yeah, thanks for using uh, that footage. I, we've seen ourselves several times on your social media. Uh, bleeping Dakota out when he does it. I, for the record, I didn't do that. I did it <laughs> hey, it makes for good. Maybe, maybe Dakota, you just need to watch your mouth. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is hilarious. I love it. It is funny. It makes for better content because we're like, what? Dakota? <laughs> That's awesome. Well, sweet, man. See you, bro. Thanks. See you guys.